Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are asking that you would shepherd us through your word tonight so that we might grasp what you laid out through the scripture as to what the ultimate program will be and what it would look like as we walked through uh, with you. You, you have invited us to the table where you're, you've laid out the plan for us. You didn't have to do that, but you, you, you gave us that privilege. We are asking that you would give us understanding of yourself and your ways and what you have planned for the end of the ages and, and what your plan is through the ages. We ask this of you, good King Jesus, and all God's people said, well, let's touch just for a moment, famous last words, on Genesis 12. And the reason we're touching on this, Genesis 12 is the, verses 1 through 3, is the promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a blessing. Excuse me. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you, Abram, shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Those three verses is the Abrahamic covenant. And it is not too big a statement to say that the rest of the biblical narrative is the fulfillment of God's keeping that promise. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. And if you read the book of Genesis, it's really a pretty rapid narrative until you get to Genesis, the close of chapter 11, which picks up with the account about Abram, who becomes Abraham. And then it slows down. And it focuses on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the experience of, e of Israel and Egypt, and they're coming out, and we've got all the narrative of the Exodus and so forth. And this Abrahamic covenant is what we're going to see fulfilled as we proceed through the biblical prophetic narrative. So I'm going to give you a land. And then he later on is very specific with, this, with the land promise. And basically it's the western third of the Fertile Crescent. Everything, the Fertile Crescent, all the way from the river Euphrates where it crosses the top, all the way down to what's called the Wadi El Arish, the river of Egypt, which is not the Nile. The Wadi El Arish is a small river that is at the end of the, what we would today would call the Gaza Strip. That whole area, the western third of the Fertile Crescent, is what God promised to Abraham. So the land, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have an uncountable multitude of children. And I'm going to bless you. I will make your name great. You know what I would dare say even today maybe especially today, probably Abraham is one of the best-known people on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. 
Great name. I will make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you shall be a blessing. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, humanly speaking. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes from Abraham. I'm going to make you a blessing. I will, uh, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will, you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. Now, the Jews didn't create this situation, but I'm going to, I'm going to use some terminology. The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, in a sense, are radioactive. They are radioactive in the positive sense and that if you bless them, God's promise to you is that you will be blessed. If you put your hand on them to harm them, God takes it personally. Even Israel in its, in its rebellion, God takes it personally. God takes it personally. So be very, very, every nation and people needs to be careful how they treat the Jewish people. Not because the Jewish people will strike you down, but because, you know what? If one of my kids got out of line, let's say I, now my kids are all grown. I've got seven, our 17th grandchild is due next month. But if, if, if I'm in the store with one of my kids, you know, when they were little, and they got out of line, it's my job to deal with them. If some stranger stepped in and maybe did exactly the same thing to them that I would do, I'd be going, uh, excuse me? Excuse me? This is my responsibility. And I would take personal offense as somebody stepping in to do what was my responsibility. And God, you need to be very careful. Every nation does in the way they treated the Jewish people. Israel, when, when Israel and Israel came down to Egypt at the time of Joseph, Israel, excuse me, Egypt experienced blessing because they welcomed the the brothers and the father of Joseph. But when they turned on them, that's when God showed up, sent his servant Moses back, and Israel was, or excuse me, Egypt was hammered with ten plagues. So what had been a place of welcome for Israel and been blessed, therefore, became cursed because of their mistreatment. And it wasn't that something that the Jewish people, it was directly from God. And so God takes personally how people deal with his people, how nations deal with his people, even if they're in disobedience. It's, they're still his people. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy 32, and this is what I was promising to, where we were going to spend our time but uh, before, you can turn to this if you like, but let me just go ahead and touch on this. This is from the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, it speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ. John the Revelator is in the throne room of heaven. 
And John the Revelator sees the one who is seated on the throne. He sees God the Father. And God the Father is holding in his right hand a scroll. And it is sealed with seven seals. And the announcement, who is, who is worthy to take the scroll from him who sits on the throne? And no one responded immediately. And John starts to weep because no one is worthy to take the scroll and, and, break and open those seals. And then one of the elders who are there, one of the 24 elders, do not weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, is worthy to take the scroll. And the lamb comes forward and takes the scroll. He's prevailed. He's, he's overcome. He's qualified to take the scroll. He takes the scroll from the right hand of his father. And then he begins to open the seals and unroll the scroll. And the seals are on the end of the scroll. So you can unroll the scroll little ways after you've broken a seal. And then in order to unroll it some more, you've got to break another seal and another seal. And the seven seals are this. The first seal is the white horse rider. And now we're going to identify him in a week or two as, as being found in the book of Daniel. And it is the, in that place in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, that it is stated to be steeled up. But then the second horse rider is the red horse rider, and that's warfare. And to that rider is given a sword. The third seal is the hunger. Uh, then he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. That's a day's wage for a quart of wheat. And three quarts of barley for a denarius for a day's wage. That's a day's wage for not much, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The fourth seal, then he opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed him, and power was given them, the red horse rider, the black horse rider, and the pale horse rider, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death, with pestilence, and by the beasts of the earth. And then the fifth seal is, I, I, he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar there in heaven the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Oh, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. And then the sixth seal, verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and the fig tree, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind, 
Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, fa- and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the the great day of his wrath has come. Well, this is the second coming of Christ. This is when he comes and judges the earth. This is the battle of Armageddon. And all the accompanying events. And then the seventh seal is chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. We won't go into this, but it really initiates the detailing of the, the pouring out of judgments of the of uh, the burning of all the grass on the earth and a third of the trees and turning the waters to blood and so forth. Okay, having touched on that, these seals that are found in the book of Revelation, now we're going back to Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to see where these seals are first mentioned. Deuteronomy 32. Now let me give you a, a view on this. Deuteronomy 32 is Moses' final message to the nation of Israel. He has been leading them for 40 years. He is 120 years old. God has already said to him, they're on the edge of the land of Canaan. His his replacement, Joshua, has already been appointed. And Deuteronomy 32 is God speaking through Moses, laying out how he is going to walk a very, very, very sinful, rebellious Israel into kingdom glory. (laughs) And he lays out the details, how I'm going to do this. Then chapter 33, Moses blesses the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 34, he goes up on Mount Pisgah and dies. But chapter 32 is called the Song of Moses, and it is his last message to Israel of how, and in chapter 31, by the way, he's already telling Israel, now they're on the verge of the land of Canaan. I mean, God has cleansed them of a whole lot of their rebels. They're on the edge of the land of Canaan. And God is going to allow Moses to go up and look on the promised land. But your replacement, Joshua, is going to lead the people in. But Moses is very hard. I mean, he is, you people are so rebellious. You look really good right now on the verge of the land of Canaan. But when you get into the land of Canaan, you are going to rebel. You are going to pursue the gods of the land that you're going into. The gods that failed those people are the gods you're going to pursue (laughs) and elevate and honor. The gods that failed. (laughs) And God is not going to give up on you in spite of the wickedness you're going to deliberately embrace. He's already told them what they're going to do. And here in chapter 32 is the 
detailing of their wickedness, but also God's restoring work that he's going to use to walk them into kingdom glory. Chapter 31, verse 30, the last verse of chapter 31. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song <laughs> until they were ended. 32.1, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. As raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. This is the first passage in the Bible where God is declared to be their rock. Then that is a, a figure that is going to be used incessantly throughout the Old Testament. He's our rock. He's our rock. He's our rock. He is the solid thing that we, an immovable person that we are able to embrace and be held by. And this is the first instance of that. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. I keep making this statement. It can't be said too often. The God of the Bible. There isn't any pagan God that even begins to compare. I remember many years ago to talking to a man, P.G. Vargas from India, founded over 7,000 churches in northern India. And I asked him, are there any Hindu gods, 33 million Hindu gods and goddesses, are any of them even supposed to be good? Oh, no! They don't even pretend to be good. This is the only good God anybody on the planet knows about. And he doesn't just declare himself to be good. He demonstrates his goodness, his love, his kindness, his mercy. Constantly. It's all over the scripture. It's the very basis of our confidence of our relationship with him. This is the God who is good. He is a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He's trustable. He doesn't trick you. He doesn't try to fool you. They, meaning the Israelis, are not his children. What's he saying? They're not like him. <laughs> they are not his children. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. That's what they are. Do you thus deal with the Lord, with Yahweh? Notice Lord is all in capital letters. That means it's the, it's the covenant name, Yahweh. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your Father, who bought you? This is the first time in the Bible where the word Father is used as a descriptive of our God. 
And it's only used, I believe, eight times in the entire Old Testament. And so you can imagine the shock it was in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is teaching his disciples how you should pray. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven. That was not common. In fact, most of the time when that term Father is used by the Israelis, it's a cry of desperation. They've blown it so bad, they got nothing else they can cling to. You're our Father. You declared yourself to be our Father. We got no other hope than that. And here is the first place where he is called their Father. That is huge. Is he not your father who bought you? Who, look at the price he paid to get you out of Egypt. He's, he sustained you for 40 years in the wilderness. His son will pay sin's penalty for you. Has he not made you and established you? Look at the tremendous effort he has made the sacrifice he has made for you remember the days of old consider the years of many generation ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the most high divided their inheritance to the nations when he separated the sons of adam we're talking about after the flood when the people separated and became distinct nations. Remember, he had to foul up their language <laughs> so they would get the, with the program of being scattered. But he separated the sons of Adam. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. What's he saying here? God chose your place, western third of the Fertile Crescent, and he chose the placement of all of the other nations around you with an eye towards how will their placement with the things that they will have to contribute supply blessing to you. And by the way, then the blessing would overflow back to them, just as God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So he chose this placement for Israel in order that the nations would bring blessing to them, but it would overflow back to them. The Lord's portion, verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He, God, found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God simply chose him. There was nothing special that said, ah, that fellow Abraham, he is a special human being and so much more wonderful than anybody else on the planet. No, none of that. <laughs> He finds him, in a sense, in the wilderness. I mean, this is a, a literary device about there was nothing special about Abraham except me, his God, made him special. 
He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That expression, the apple of his eye, is, is a metaphor for the pupil. Your pupil is round like an apple. And so that's where the term apple of the eye comes. So what's the point here? How protective of you are, are you of your eyes? I mean, if somebody is coming at you, the part of our body that we're going to be the most protective of is our eyes. And so if somebody is, you want to get God's attention, you want to poke God in the eye, you put your hand on the Jewish people to harm them. Oh, you just poke God in the eye. Boy, did you get his attention and you won't like the outcome. You are the apple of my eye. In the same way that when we have had children or loved ones, we are protective of them in a special way. And that's what it's saying here. He found, again, verse 10, he found him in the desert land in the, in the waste, and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He brought them out of Egypt just like that. The mother eagle lifts up her, you know, her nestlings have gotten enough feathers on their wings now that they're capable of flying, and Mama knows it. And so she, they, but they don't have the courage to jump off the edge of the nest, right? Okay. So Mama says, "Oh, I'll help you, <laughs> Mama." <laughs> <laughs> and mama flies out and then and they get the feel of what it means and then she lets them go and spread out their wings and they find out how to fly because mama did the mama thing and God did the same thing with Israel. He brought them out of Egypt and they've learned how to be a nation together in a, diff in a difficult place. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. God had cleansed them of their foreign gods. Remember that the worship of the bulls and cows at the foot of the Mount Sinai, God cleansed them of that. Verse 13, he made him Israel ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock. You don't get honey from a rock. God did in the wilderness. He produced for them in miraculous ways. I mean, the most obvious thing was when he turned the, the bitter water sweet, but then the most obvious thing was when Moses was instructed to strike the rock and it split. This is a rock, a, an enormous boulder on top of a hill. And we know where it is today. It's on top of a hill in the Saudi Arabian desert. <laughs> and you can see where the water flowed from the from the crack in the rock. It's enormous. 
it's still you can see the here's the crack and here's the evidence of the in the middle of the desert and that water followed them for years and two and a half to four million people enough water for two and a half four million people and their livestock <laughs> oh yeah the Saudis uh, know what it is the Saudis know all of this stuff yeah it, the Israelis did not wander in what we would call the Sinai Peninsula, which is the traditional place that, no, they were over in Saudi Arabia. And we don't have time to go into that right now. <laughs> Again, verse 12, so the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the field. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan. And the area of Bashan was renowned for the quality of their livestock, by the way. And rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine and drank the drank and and you drank wine the blood of the grapes but jeshurun grew fat jeshurun is a hebrew word the hebrew word is yasher and it means upright and it's really being used here uh, ironically but Jeshurun, the upright one, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he, Jeshurun, forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Here is the God that delivered you, that guided you, that fed you, that watered you, that sustained you through 40 years in the wilderness, and what did you and what will you do? You scorned him. Not one single logical reason for doing it, but they did it. And they're going to do it. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. By the way, all pagan gods and goddesses are, in fact, demons. The word daimon, from which we get the English word demon, means a divine being. But they are fallen angels. They are the angels that joined Lucifer in his rebellion against God. As we're going to see when we get to the book of Revelation, it was about one-third of the angelic population that joined Lucifer in his rebellion. And so pay, that is what people are worshiping, is these fallen angels. The, again, verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. And have forgotten the God who fathered you. Not any excuse for this. Just 
just wickedness and rebellion. When the Lord, and when the Lord, when Yahweh saw it, he spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. Oh, you want to go that direction? Fine, I'll let you go. You know, one of the worst curses God can place on us is letting us do what we want. <laughs> letting us have our own way. And it blows up in our face 100% of the time. That's right. They were doing what was right in their own eyes and it blew up in their faces. <laughs> it led them to being punished, to their punishment, to their grief. I will hide, again, verse 20, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Hmm. Do we ever hear that passage quoted anywhere? We do. We hear it, we see it quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially chapters 10 and 11, are a description. Well, Paul is dealing with the issue. What do we do with Israel? Many, many, many Jews did embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In fact, I'm told by the Jews for Jesus that until about 180 A.D., the majority of Christians were Jews. But as a nation, Israel rejected Messiah. And they stood before Pilate who said, I'm washing my hands of this. I can, this is totally unjust. This is totally wicked. And they said, let his blood be upon us and on our children. Ouch! Bad decision. How did that work out for them? Well, in 68 A.D., they rebelled against the Roman authorities. And in 70 A.D., the Romans came over the walls, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, crucified about 100,000 Jews outside the city walls, and sold the rest of them into slavery. It was, in fact, they suppressed the value of slaves in the Roman world for several years because it was a glut on the market. That did not work out well. But Paul quotes this statement in the book of Romans when he says, I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation and I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. What's that? As we're going to see as we go further into this series, God set Israel aside temporarily. He set Israel aside as that body of redeemed people through whom he was reaching the world. He, he shelved them. Why? 
let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And he created a new body of redeemed people called the church. We're going to focus on this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is a few weeks away, about four weeks away. Where Paul says in the close of Ephesians 2 that out of both Jews and Gentiles, God has created a new body of redeemed people, the foundation of which is the apostles and New Testament prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on and talks about this in chapter 3, and he says that the church, and he uses the term the church, was a mystery. It was a secret. You don't find the church anywhere in the Old Testament. It was a secret. And when Israel rejected Messiah, God said, I'm pulling the secret plan out of my pocket and I'm initiating it. The day of Pentecost was the birthday of this new body of redeemed people called the church. And that's what Paul is pointing to in the book of Romans when he says of the Jewish people, of the nation of unbelieving Jews, he will provoke them to jealousy and anger by a foolish people, by a foolish nation. You want to really mess with a Jewish person who is not a Jesus follower? You, Mr., Miss, Mrs. Gentile, walk up to that Jewish person and say, let me tell you about your Messiah. What? I don't need you to tell me about my Messiah. And believe me, I have had encounters like this. And God sets the stage and he ends up right between the eyes. Let me give you a a personal illustration. This is many years when I was a student in college. I was down on Hollywood Boulevard with an evangelism group. And I'm talking to a guy who said he was Jewish. And I start talking to him about Isaiah chapter 53, this fantastic prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And he said, and this is a Jewish explanation of Isaiah 53 that doesn't stand up to 20 seconds of <laughs> testing. Oh, that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Israel. And I know it, it makes no sense, but when you got nothing, you go, you go for nonsense. And so I said, I'm not even going to try to argue with that. And I said to him, Okay, well, let me ask you about this. It says this in Zechariah chapter 12. It describes the setting up how God is going to deliver Israel, Jerusalem, the Jews that are in it, and bring them into kingdom glory. Zechariah chapter 12. Thus says the Lord, I am going to, as, Israel, as Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist, It's darkness. I am going to come out. I'm going to rip open the heavens. I'm going to come out. And the Jews who are in Jerusalem are going to look on. This is written 400 years before Jesus' birth. They will look on me whom they pierced. And mourn for me mourn for him as for an only son and I will pour out on them a spirit of grace and of supplication of crying out to me and I will forgive them. 
and restore them. And I said to this fellow, you and I both know there's only one person in all of Jewish history that the Jewish people as a whole took responsibility for having pierced, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. And it was just like the Holy Spirit went, kaboosh. There is only one, and it is Jesus. And here is a prophecy 400 years before Jesus' birth. They will look on me whom they pierced and mourn because they will know. They will know I'm the one whom they said, let his blood be upon me and upon it, but I will forgive them. Here I was, a foolish Gentile, <laughs> telling this Jewish fellow about his Messiah. But lots and lots and lots of Jews are coming to Jesus today. Lots of them. Because God is using the foolish to accomplish his purpose. I will provoke them by a foolish nation. Verse 22, for a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, wait a minute. We are getting into things that Jesus is... You look at the seals in the book of Revelation. We're see, this is the beginning of the description of the contents of those seals. Now let me point you to something that we're going to be coming to. Verse 34, where Jesus says, where, excuse me, where God has pushed this message through Moses. And he says this in verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, the Lord? Sealed up among my treasures, vengeance is mine and recompense. The things that God's going to start describing through Moses beginning here, where I just read, are the things that he's going to say in verse 34 are sealed up. And what do we see Jesus doing in Revelation chapter 6? Opening the seals. Again, verse 22, for a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase. Now, remember that black horse rider and the hunger? One of the, the, the opening of the seventh seal, Revelation chapter 8, when that eight, seventh seal is open, it begins the trumpet judgments. And all the grass on the earth and a third of the trees are burned up. That's an outcome of the opening of a seal. I will. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. By the way, one of the things that will make that fire truly horrific is that when we get into the book of Revelation, we look at Revelation chapter 11, it's going to talk about the two witnesses that have been in the temple calling plagues down on Israel and the surrounding nations. And these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. 
And it says in the three and a half years of their work, there is no rain on the earth for three and a half years. And we find in Revelation chapter 7, one of the things that happens on day one of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation era, is that there are four angels who stop the winds. Well, if you stop the winds, you've stopped the movement of the storms. You still have storm. You still have evaporation. You still have clouds. You still have rain, but it stays right over the bodies of water. Without the, the jet stream winds, the storms stay... And there is no rain on the earth for three and a half years. Just as in the time of Elijah, who will be one of those two witnesses. By the way, Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, accompanied by a chariot. And he's going to be coming back as one of those two witnesses. And what was the first miracle that Elijah did? He walked up to Ahab. We've never heard of Elijah. And this guy, Elijah, walks up to Ahab and says, Hey, pal, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And he disappeared for how long? Three and a half years. And there was no rain on Israel for three and a half years. And that's going to be replicated, but not just for Israel, for the earth. No rain. And that's why you're going to have the hunger. There's not going to be any rain. There will be no harvests. A fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It should consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They will be attacked. They shall be wasted with hunger. That's the third seal. That's the black horse rider. Devoured by pestilence. That's the fourth horse rider, the pale horse rider. Pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts. That's also mentioned in the fourth seal. With the poison of serpents of the dust, the sword shall destroy outside. That's the second horse rider. That's the red horse rider who has the sword. It's warfare. The sword shall destroy outside there shall be terror within, within Israel, for the young man and virgin, the nursing child, and the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease among men. You know, if I gave you what you deserved, I'd just be washing my hands of you totally. Sorry, Abraham. <laughs> That eternal promise I gave you, nah, no, but I can't do that. I made a promise to Abraham, and that's the thin thread that's going to bring your deliverance. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, hey, our hand is high. And it is not the Lord who has done, oh, the destruction of Israel. No, no, that wasn't their God hammering them. That was all us. Well, you know, Israel, I can't let that misunderstanding stand, so I guess I'm going to have to deliver you. <laughs> wow, yikes. Whew. That was close. 
Verse 28, for they, Israel, are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. There is an outcome to your choices. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless they're rock? Now, in my version, that rock is capitalized, and that's correct. Me, what he's talking about is, is a thousand Israelis being chased by one little pagan. <laughs> How could this happen unless God, their rock, had sold them? Unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. For their rock, notice here, it is not capitalized, meaning the Gentile rock, what they're counting on. For their rock is not like our rock. Now, this is Israelis who are in rebellion. But they know stuff about their God. They know their history. They can read what happened not only in Egypt and in the in the conquest of the land of Canaan and in the book of Judges and all the other things, they know the difference between their God and every other God is when they are standing with their God, they never lose. They never lose. They are always 100% consistently the victors. And now we're being defeated. That there's only one explanation for that, we are not walking with our rock. We are not vitally attached to him. He is not sustaining us because we, in fact, have rebelled against him. We have turned our back on him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Their rock, the Gentile rock, is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me? Here you are, experience all this horrible judgment, this defeat. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Here Moses is, this is about 1400 B.C., and Moses is telling them well in advance what it's going to look like. And God says, this is not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my tre treasures. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. Now, if you go back all the way, he's actually talking about the Gentiles here with the small r rock. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people. I already suggested to you, judge 
doesn't just mean hammering the bad guy. It means delivering the ones who are being persecuted, who are being harmed. The Lord will judge his people, and the next line reinforces that, and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, and there is no one remaining, bond or free. Well, what's, what is the scene that we're going to see in the book of Revelation? We're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist. 92 miles in every direction around Jerusalem. That's a, this is the armies of at least 10 nations gathered for one single purpose to annihilate the Jews who are in Jerusalem. And they are there because they've been, been incited, as we'll see in the book of Revelation. Satan has convinced them to do this very foolish thing. <laughs> he has brought them to their, what they think is going to be this great victory and destruction of the Jews. In fact, they're coming, the Gentile armies are there for their own destruction. But Israel, Jerusalem is surrounded 92 miles in every direction by the armies of the nations. About the Jews are about to be destroyed, and that's when, in a day of great darkness, the heavens will rip open. Out will ride Jesus on a white horse. I hope you got your riding lessons in. Because you're going to be there too. And the heavens will fill. Now put yourself in the place of one of those uh, Antichrist soldiers. Now let's, I'll, I'll try to keep my language clean. Oh, dang. <laughs> this is not good. As you watch the heavens rip open and Jesus ride out on a white horse. And then the heavens fill with the saints of every age riding white horses filling the heavens and when the, the heavens are filled with the army of the Lord, the only, the only one who will actually be a warrior will be Jesus himself. He has the sword coming out of, which means that his weapon is his word. <laughs> he will speak a word and it says in Zechariah chapter 14 that instantly the blood will be up to the level of the horse's bridle. Zechariah 14 it says well, if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they open up the uh, Ark of the Covenant and they melt, that they got that from Zechariah 14. There, it says in Zechariah 14, their eyes will melt in their sockets and their flesh will melt on their bones. And <laughs> the blood will be up to the level of the horse's bridles that fast. Jesus will simply speak a word. Zechariah 14. Again, verse 36, For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone, when there is no hope but him, and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, Israel, where are your gods? The rock in which you sought refuge? Where, where, what, what about those plans that you had that didn't ever quite work out? Who ate the, fa 
who ate the fat of their sacrifice, talking about the pagan gods eating the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings, let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword, if I sharpen my glittering sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies. This is the sixth seal. Crying out is the men are crying out, men of every level of society, crying out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. I will, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour much, shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Now notice this. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Why? He established Israel and he placed the nations around Israel with an eye towards how will their placement bring blessing to Israel, but then the blessing will flow back to the nations. And what does he say? He enjoins us, he enjoins the Gentiles, join in with Israel in the praise. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he, God, will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. What was the fifth seal? And I saw the saints crying out from under the altar in heaven, O Lord, how long, holy and true, before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Be patient. Here's your white robe. <laughs> it's yet to come. We're, and we will see in the book of Revelation, it's going to come. It'll be the fourth, um, third or fourth bowl judgment will be the turning of the waters of the rivers and streams into blood. And Lord, you are pouring out vengeance on these people because they shed the blood of your saints. And now you are giving them blood to drink. But that's about six and a half years. This is after the seal. That seal has been opened. But then it's several years later before it's fulfilled. But this is what we find here is that fifth seal. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. End of the Song of Moses. So Moses came with Joshua the son of Nun and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to, to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life 
Now here's speaking of the entire book of Deuteronomy. Because it is your life. By this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Now here we have in Deuteronomy 32 the basic plan for how God is going to restore Israel to their promised Abrahamic blessing in the days that lie before us. And it's going to happen. And many of the details are laid out then in the book of Revelation. Any comments or questions? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that as this very chapter encourages us to do, we can call you our Father. Your devoted attention in, the, in all of who you are is always focused upon us. And so we can say, Our Father, please enable us to walk in this assurance that this lays out before us that indeed that great promise of the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. He's going to fulfill the promised kingdom glory and we will have a place in it by means of your mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and served both Israel and the nations when you went to the cross and paid sin's penalty for all of us. So by the simple act of faith in what you've done, trusting in its finished work, we have a promise of welcome, glad welcome with you. We give you all the praise in your name, great Savior Jesus. Amen.